Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Food and Drink Podcast, a series that asks how food and agriculture can achieve impacts against the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. This podcast is brought to you by Lumen Intelligence Sustainability, a subscription service for industry, governments and NGOs that explores how to achieve closer alignment with the SDGs with a focus on cocoa, coffee, tea and palm. I'm Oliver Nyberg, a market analyst for Luminous Sustainability and former editor of food and drink industry publications such as Confectionery News. This edition features a discussion with Rick Scobie, president of the World Cocoa Foundation. Rick and I spoke last month to discuss deforestation in the cocoa sector. One of the UN SDGs aims to halt deforestation and to reduce degradation of natural habitats. But a 2017 report from NGO Mighty Earth claimed cocoa production through the expansion of plantations had been responsible for Ghana losing 10% of its tree cover and swathes of protected forest area lost in Cote d'Ivoire between 2001 and 2014. This cocoa-driven expansion poses a threat to endangered species of monkeys and elephants living in the areas. The cocoa sector, guided by the World Cocoa Foundation, banded together with the Prince of Wales and the governments in Ghana and, and Cote d'Ivoire to take action under the banner of the Cocoa and Forest Initiative in 2017. Companies part of this initiative, including big ones like Mars, Mondelez and Ferrero, published action plans on how they plan to tackle deforestation last month. My conversation with Rick took place as roughly half of those company action plans have been published. I started by asking how much of the action details in those plans is really new. Wasn't some of the mapping and traceability promised already planned by companies anyway? Let me remind you of the overall process of the Cocoa and Forest Initiative. There's been three separate steps. The first step was having 12 companies uh, commit to a statement of intent in March 2017 under the leadership of Prince Charles. Under the statement of intent, we made a commitment to work with the, the two West African governments of Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire to prepare a detailed framework for action by November of 2017, so about seven to eight months after we made the statement of intent commitment, which would spell out the high-level actions and principles that the companies and governments would follow to achieve zero deforestation in the cocoa sector. And then the third step was a commitment to prepare individual company action plans within 12 months, as well as the national government action plans that would provide the specific targets uh, for delivery over a five-year period. So you're right that the, there was a general high-level statement of the commitment to the principle of traceability in March 2017 in the statement of intent. Then eight months later in the framework for action, we provided more details exactly as to what would be traceable and the process steps that would be taken to develop a traceability action plan. And then under the specific company action plans, they're now providing the commitments about the number of farms that they're going to map in their supply chain uh, by the end of 2019. So it is providing more detailed actions with deadlines to honor the high level actions and commitments that were made earlier. And the portion of the supply that this, um, this covers, is it, related 
only to the part of the supply under company company programs or is it covering where you know part of the company programs their volumes coming from established um, established cooperatives where potentially the risk of deforestation is lower rather than the portion coming from smallholders outside of uh, cooperative structures and outside of company programs what's the what's the scope of the commitment the framework for action spells out the steps required to eliminate deforestation throughout the entire supply chain in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. And they spell out very concrete actions and steps that the companies and the government will take to achieve that. So, for example, when it comes to traceability, the companies have made a commitment to ensure that all of the cocoa that they buy directly themselves from farmers will be mapped and fully traceable. And at the same time, the government made a commitment that would it would put in place regu new regulations that would ensure that all traders of cocoa, whether they are international companies <clears throat> who've signed up for the Cocoa and Forest Initiative or international companies who haven't signed up for Cocoa and Forest Initiative or national traders who are not yet signed up for CFI. The government would put in place regulations requiring traceability applicable to all the different actors. So that way we have the leading companies making commitments in their own direct supply chains and then the government ensuring it's a level playing field and it will apply to all cocoa that's uh, sourced and traded in, in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. And, and the, regula the regulation that you mentioned, is that, would that apply to both countries and when is that likely to, 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 to come in force? And do, you know, do local traders, for example, have the capacity to, to put this in place? And the, it, you're, the, you're raising a very good question about the commitment and the capacity of local traders to implement some of these actions. It's one thing for the international traders uh, to invest in the technologies and the tools for farm GPS farm mapping and doing proper rigorous deforestation risk assessments. It's a different thing for a small national trader who may not have the funding or the capacity. So that's why we spell out in the framework of action a process that the government and companies, national and international, will come together to develop the specific action plans, timelines, and steps that are needed to deliver the full traceability. The companies who signed the framework have made a commitment to ensure uh, the full traceability of the cocoa that they directly source in their supply chain from their farmers, but the commitment of when the country will put in place the requirement for full traceability, there's no dated timeline for that yet. There's just a commitment to develop the action plan with government and the companies on when that will be in place. Does that risk creating any power imbalance in the in, in, in the market in the you know the local local traders as we say might not have the capacity to do this whereas the larger ones the the larger ones will and they could you know feasibly increase increase their market share 
and that potentially wouldn't be good for creating value or origin. The, the frameworks for action emphasize the importance of mobilizing financing from international financial organizations like the World Bank and the African Development Bank to support the implementation of the different activities. And I think a very important requirement will be building the technical and financial capacity of local companies to comply with core environmental and social safeguard standards. Of course, there's a requirement that a local company needs to be committed to do it. And for any company who's not willing to commit, that's a problem. But for a company who understands the importance of complying with the government's regulation and they need some technical or financial support, we're committed to helping mobilize those resources. What's your assessment of where the, the biggest you know, risk areas of, of risk lie for for deforestation because I'm, I'm guessing i'm guessing it's not those volumes that are coming from those direct trade volumes that are coming from coming from program um company programs it is those those other other volumes coming through through, through traders but would, would you agree with that the government of cote d'ivoire itself has estimated that up to 30 to 40 percent of cocoa currently being sold in the market comes out of areas that are gazetted as for a class A. And you're correct that it, that volume of cocoa is not purchased directly from the international traders. It's mostly purchased by national traders and then it makes its way into the, the, the global cocoa supply system those local traders who are called traitants et pisteurs then sell it to a variety of different um, market channels. So the cocoa ends up in the terminal market <clears throat> where anyone can purchase. And our goal is to make sure that no cocoa that is grown on protected areas will be traded in, in the global market. And we need to do that, first of all, by making sure the government clarifies the permissible land uses in the different uh, land use categories in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. Secondly, puts in place a regulatory framework that applies to all stakeholders, all actors uh, in, in the trade economy. And third, that there's good monitoring and evaluation to double check where cocoa is coming from. We haven't yet had all of the um, all the action plans uh, published published yet, but I've seen that some um, some of your members, like Nestle, for example, has uh, has published the traders that it's dealing with in 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 Cote d'Ivoire and um, and Ghana, whereas others others haven't. What's the what's WCF's position on you know, publishing the traders of each company, so there's transparency on the on the volumes that don't come from company programs. Nestle took a a, a significant and bold step in accelerating transparency and accountability of commodity information in the supply chain by disclosing 
their tier one and tier two suppliers and the upstream locations from where those suppliers source cocoa. The other large actors in the supply chain are also reviewing the scope for that kind of, of disclosure and transparency. And it's really up to each individual company on the basis of their sustainability strategy to decide uh, how and when they want to disclose commodity information. I wanted to ask about the um, the risk risk assessments. Do, do those... Uh, how do those risk assessments work outside of the um, company program structures? Would it be incumbent on the trade on tr on traders through regulation to conduct conduct those risk assessments? The, the the first step that the companies are taking to ensure there is no cocoa sourced from associated with deforestation is to map out directly all of the location of the farms that they buy from. The second step is the recognition that we've seen examples where farmers may be selling cocoa that comes from a third party directly to one of our, of our supply chain companies. And so we want to it's not enough just to map the location of your farms. You also need to assess what is the risk that cocoa associated with deforestation might actually uh, come through a third party into your farm sale. So that's why each company is committed to developing a deforestation risk assessment tool, uh, which we are very good, exciting progress has been made. We just haven't harmonize the exact definitions that everybody's going to follow. Generally, it says you need to be, if you are something like three to five kilometers uh, away from a protected forest area, you need to have heightened risk assessment and monitor the volumes of cocoa that you're buying. So, for example, if you're buying uh, cocoa from a farm which in the past has had average production levels of say 500 kilos per hectare, but then all of a sudden you see a, a jump increase to 750 kilos per hectare, that's a red flag in a high deforestation risk that you may be inadvertently purchasing cocoa that came from a different farm. So the, the risk assessment tool will be providing those red flags for companies to then investigate on the ground. So, so I've, I've, I've seen in, in, in Ghana some farms that are you know, right on the perimeter of protected, protected forest areas, literally right, right next door, which you'd assume would be the at-risk at farms. But what happens to those, to, to, to those producers once they're found at risk? Two responses. The first is, it's, it's actually even more complicated in the case of Ghana because you have cocoa farms in some national parks or protected forest reserves, which actually are, have legal standing. They're called admitted forests, that the um, land tenure for the cocoa farm production in those protected areas has been granted and approved by the government. So therefore, that cocoa is, is legally 
produced, even though it's within the boundaries of a protected area. But only for a certain um, time period, right? No, in, in the case of the admitted forests, uh, they have legal stature to continue producing cocoa. There's a different production system called the modified Tonga system that the government of, of Ghana is using where there has been uh, cocoa farming found in, in other areas where it's going to be reduced over, over time. And that's a similar principle. And then there's a, a different context in Cote d'Ivoire where you have cocoa farming taking place on land that was gazetted 50 years ago as a classified forest or a foray classe. But it's the trees were cleared a long time ago, often for uh, timber extraction. And then cocoa farming and communities developed in the degraded landscape 10 or 20 years ago. And what will happen with those cocoa farms? Are, are those going to be returned to forest areas? Is the government going to allow continued cocoa production uh, over time in a different kind of agroforestry system? That's why it's very important in the case of Ghana for the government to complete the legal revisions to the forest code, which is going to be clarifying what is permissible land use um, according to the different forest degradation categories of the foray class A in the case of Cote d'Ivoire. What will actually happen to a farmer in an at-risk zone? We've developed uh, written guidelines that spell out the steps that the supply chain is supposed, company is supposed to take, which is it will uh, inform the government, the local government of the uh, infraction, and then it will report the data to WCF, and WCF will then anonymize and aggregate uh, and have that results be part of the annual reporting system that's being put in place for the monitoring and evaluation framework. However, there's, there's one important caveat that the guide, that approach, those guidelines, um, will only become operational once the, the government has completed the uh, approval and publication of the environmental and social safeguard requirements that are spelled out in the framework. Uh, the, the framework for action requires the government to develop social safeguard policies that will spell out what would happen to uh, any farmer whose livelihood and income is affected by the enforcement of the national environmental regulations. And we've agreed on a principle in the framework, both the government and companies agreed, that the government uh, will be responsible for providing alternative livelihoods and the restoration of standard of living of any affected farmers in line with reasonable standards to be agreed upon. And I we're mean, expecting the standards to be uh, proposed for approval in the next few months. What, what will that actually mean in practice? I mean, what, what, what will be provided what, as, an, uh, as an alternative livelihood? If, I, if, 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 if I'm a farmer who's expanded into a, a uh, a protected a protected area because you know I don't have the finance to you know 
to support my family but potentially i'm i'm then reported to the government i'm excluded from the company program so i'm no longer getting 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 that premium the government is going to try and guarantee um some alternatively like alternative livelihood but what would that actually mean what would that look like when it comes to the national parks which are the most important biodiversity centers and the most ecologically sensitive areas both governments are committed to full protection of uh, the environmental services and the enforcement of the current restrictions for no cocoa production or sourcing in national parks. That accounts for a very small percentage of the land mass in both countries. And there really is very, currently there's very little cocoa production coming out of the national parks. The much larger land mass area and the larger source of cocoa is from the protected forest reserves. And in both countries, the government is developing differentiated approach to land use management in the forest, protected forest reserves. Generally, they're saying for forest areas which have significant forest cover intact, say 70% forest cover, um, the government plans to enforce the restrictions of no cocoa farming. Then for a middle category of, of forest cover where there's some remaining trees but the forests are not very intact, the government is going to allow for a certain time period, generally up to the life cycle of the current cocoa planting there. So up to say 20 to 25 years, the government will permit the farmers to continue to harvest the cocoa as long as they agree to implement uh, agroforestry principles and systems, which include some level of reforestation and replanting of non-cocoa trees. Then in the third, third category of very heavily degraded forests, the trees were cut down a long time ago, uh, primarily for timber extraction, cocoa farming has come in. The, the governments are looking to uh, retain cocoa farming, but on a, a different production basis, one that is more environmentally sustainable, which would embrace climate smart cocoa production techniques, as well as agroforestry production techniques, meaning you'd be allowed to, to grow cocoa, but it would need to be uh, with a mix of shade trees and other economic trees that will provide environmental service value. So, so potentially lots of people will still be able to still be able to, to grow, but do you have a sense of, I mean, how many do you, how many farmers do you expect are at risk of, uh, of you know, because they're at risk, they could be excluded from company programs. Do we have a sense of, you know, yeah, how many farmers are, uh, are at risk yeah. of deforestation? The framework for action spelled out a very important early step from the governments, which was to complete the collection of baseline data about the extent of forest cover, particularly in the, in the 4A Class A and the forest reserves in Ghana, uh, and the level of 
farming activity and the size of the communities and, and population. And the government still is collecting that data. So we don't have a clear answer yet on what's going to be the social impact uh, when you start looking at the three different land use categories. And we've agreed on the principles to be followed for those uh, social impacts, but we don't yet know what's the magnitude. And that's why we, you may have seen that we have produced what we're calling the initial company action plans. The original intention was that after one year of signing the frameworks at the Conference of Parties in Bonn in November 2017, the companies had up to one year to produce their action plans. And the plans were, are, were designed to include very clear commitments about the number of hectares of forests that the companies are going to support uh, for restoration, the amount of farmers and the amount of hectares that would be subject to agroforestry development, the number of farmers who would receive uh, a very innovative financial tool called payments for environmental services. Mm -hmm. Since the, we're waiting still for the government to complete the collection of the baseline data, we've agreed that we're not able to provide all of that uh, answers and actions yet in our action plans. So that's why you, you will see in each of the company action plans and the aggregated action plan for the two countries, there are several indicators which say to be determined. And as soon as we get the, the clarification from the government on the final legal frameworks for permissible land use, as well as the baseline data, then the companies can complete the task of the final action plans. Well, Oliver, we did, it's important to note we do not want to wait for all of the data. We felt it was important that even with incomplete data, the companies should give an indication to the global community about their, their initial thinking and their initial plan. I guess it's it's difficult to know the the, the scale until the, till the data comes back. But I mean, if there are a lot of farmers found in those the, those at, at risk areas that have to be provided with alternative livelihoods, where does the finance come from to do that? We're talking to uh, world, in particular, World Bank, African Development Bank, the Green Climate Fund, and some of the other uh, carbon finance and climate change funds. Uh, for financing for the social impacts, and a lot of the um, looking at the uh, the release, a lot of uh, a lot of the plan relates to uh, appears to relate to inputs, um, whether it's um, good agricultural practice training, um, planting material, or, or, or farming documentation. Um, how do you measure the final outcome, if any of that is has been a, su a success? How do you measure whether it's you know restored land and led to a decreased level of, of deforestation? How will that be done and how often will that happen? These initial plans, which will be expanded and finalized in 2019, already include some very important, ambitious commitments of industry. For example, in forest protection, the companies have committed to map the GPS location of 1 million farms by 2019. Likewise, 
there's already a commitment to develop 400,000 hectares of cocoa agroforestry and to distribute and plant 12.6 million native trees for off-farm restoration and a commitment to sign contracts for payments for environmental services with 215,000 farmers. Likewise, when it comes to promoting sustainable production, the companies have already committed to reach more than uh, 825,000 farmers with training in environmentally sustainable cocoa farming and to distribute uh, 22 million improved seedlings in Ghana. So I, there's a very encouraging response of the companies as well as the governments themselves are stepping up. So I think we have a real pathway to end deforestation in the cocoa sector, but it will take significant support from the international development community. So we really are reaching out to partners like the World Bank, the African Development Bank, the Global Environmental Facility, and other partners to provide the technical and financial resources to leverage the investment that the governments and companies are already making. So, so, so I saw the, uh, the the retailers common common action plan. Um, in there, it's details that um, those three retailers would be committed to collaboration and harmonized approaches. But I mean, what does that what does what does that tangibly mean? In the case of the three retailers who have signed up for Cocoa and Forest Initiative, uh, we've agreed that they would present one consolidated plan on how the retailer segment wants to drive the standards for zero deforestation down through their supply chain. I think the retailers are planning to uh, require their suppliers to follow the uh, principles and actions set out in the Cocoa and Forests Initiative. And they will monitor that the products that they uh, purchase, uh, including the cocoa and, and processed chocolate inputs for their own, own brand material, uh, chocolates, uh, comply with the CFI actions. Like all of the companies, they need to be careful about ensuring compliance with antitrust and anti-competition laws. So they will need to be very careful that they are not reaching any agreement that could be perceived as uh, colluding for certain agreements. So that's why the retailer plan uh, focuses on, on the principles and then within their own individual company decision-making, they will be following through on how to implement those principles. So, so, I mean, effectively, if you're not, if you're a supplier to one of those companies and you're not a signatory to the Cocoa and Forest Initiative, effectively, you have to follow it anyway if you want to continue to sell to Tesco and Sainsbury's. Um, I, I shouldn't, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of the retailers, I'm, I'm not empowered to do that. So for your question on how are retailers at the individual level going to implement their commitments in the retailer action plan, I, I really do need to ask you to follow up directly with, with Sainsbury, uh, Tesco, and Marks and & Spencer. 
And that brings us to the end of our podcast. The Cocoa and Forest Initiative is a really positive development and has the potential, at least, to end cocoa-driven deforestation. But as an industry observer, I'm inclined to hold judgment, um, take the Harkin-Engel protocol, which promised to end child labour in cocoa, but um, child labour in the commodity is still far from being a thing of the past. Um, Yet on deforestation, there is still some room for optimism and we'll be following developments closely. Um, At Lumina, we're tracking the commitments from each company on the subscription platform and hope to assess annually how far the industry has come. We'll also have our annual SDG reports on the platform, including a report on Goal 15, which is Life on Land, the one that deals with deforestation, where we'll provide some insights and recommendations on curbing deforestation in cocoa, coffee and tea. So thank you for sticking with us. This series is brought to you by Lumina Intelligence Sustainability and the music credit is for Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you and goodbye.